from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. This is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, Jeffrey Tubin tells us about his latest, The Oath, The Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Jeffrey Tubin is a Harvard-educated lawyer, author at The New Yorker, and senior legal analyst for CNN. He is the best-selling author of The Nine, Too Close to Call, A Vast Conspiracy, and his latest, The Oath, The Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Jeffrey Tubin. Great to be with you. Well, you're in town for the Thurber House series, which we always recommend. And uh, I'd like to know, have you noted any other links between you and James Thurber besides working at The New Yorker? Have you well, delved the, into the, it? Well, there's, um, you know, one of the things they did when 25 West 43rd Street was the old headquarters of The New Yorker. Okay. And when they moved out of that, um, they found in the office where Thurber used to work that as his eyesight was deteriorating, he wrote on the walls great big cartoons. And when they moved out of that building, they pulled the plaster off the walls and framed Thurber's drawings. So every day when I go to work, I see those old Thurber, Thurber drawings. Do you have plaster walls or are you in a cubicle? Do you have we plans are, to... We are now in, uh, in a very bore, boring modern office building that has no plaster walls, although shortly we... Or, in a couple of years, we're going to be moving to the World Trade Center, the new building. Oh, down, okay. Da- so downtown. then, you, do you plan to write on the walls there in the same way? Legal opinions? No, I, I, it's not as it, it, the, okay. the, the charm is is gone. There's, oh, nothing, there's nothing really to. They're not. Nobody wants to write on the walls anymore. <laughs> that's too bad. That's too bad. But it also means you need to lose your eyesight. I, yeah, I'm rather avoid so, that yeah. too. So, uh, in your latest, the oath, the Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Let's turn to that for a little bit. You argue that John Roberts is a much more active change agent than one might first consider him because he's a conservative. And you further say that uh, the change that he's after is sort of conservative judicial opinions, which will be a new understanding of the Constitution. Tell me about how that plays out in his decision on Obamacare, which I think is one of the reasons that you wrote the book. Well, it it is. um, it, It is certainly the exception. And it is a very, very important exception, but it's important to know how unusual it is. I mean, just to talk about the, in, the, the, the Roberts approach to the law in general. I mean, there has been a conservative agenda at the Supreme Court since the 1980s, since uh, Edwin Meese came to Washington with Ronald Reagan and said, look, we need a conservative agenda. Reverse Roe versus Wade and allow states to ban abortion. Uh, end racial preferences intended to assist African Americans, uh, welcome religion into the public sphere, uh, expand the opportunities for the death penalty. All these areas, the court has been tr- moving in, in, in that direction, although it hasn't moved all the way. Roberts is a change agent for that agenda. He was not in the, in the Obamacare decision. He sided with the four liberals, but I think to understand John Roberts is to understand why he did what he did. Okay. And you explain that in a lot more detail in the book to say that uh, this was, a, as you said, a, uh, something along the lines of a brilliant strategic move that allows him to do things later on. That's right. I, I think Roberts is very concerned about the court institutionally, that chief justices tend to be. They, they, they want the court to be respected. They also want the court to be seen somewhat apart from the day-to-day political struggles of Washington. Um, There are five Republicans and four Democrats on the Supreme Court. That is the most significant fact about this current Supreme Court. Um, 
Robert saw this case as the third in a trilogy. Bush v. Gore, 2000. Citizens United, 2010. Obamacare, 2012. If he had ruled with his conservative colleagues in this case, it would have been the third consecutive major case where the five Republicans did grave damage to the Democrats. And it would have been seen, I think correctly, as a deeply political act. Robert pulled back from this precipice and and decided to uphold the law, but I am under no illusions, and I don't think anybody else should be under any illusions, that he has somehow discovered his inner moderate. (laughs) This is still the same John Roberts we've seen for six years. Okay. Now, when you wrote the book, what was your access to the justices? Did you get to speak to them? They're all off record, as far as I could tell. You probably didn't get to interview them. How did you... Uh, what did, kind of I spoke did you have? to a majority of the really? justices. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my uh, my rule was with them that I didn't disclose who I spoke to or what came from which okay. justice. Um, the um, my I also spoke to a great many law clerks. Uh, that's right. the princi- th- Those two are the principal sources for okay. the book, as well as, of course, the public record, the court's arguments and decisions. Okay. And what was that like to to talk to them when you have to set up these things to say, I won't quote, basically, right? Well, How did that affect you as a, a writer? Well, the book? fortunately, ha- having written The Nine, right. um, they all had seen The Nine. They all knew The Nine. All the law clerks knew The Nine. I mean, that book was fortunately successful, widely read. It was very widely read at the Supreme Court, I can be sure of that. Okay. And um, so they understood how I operated. And I think I all, they also understood that I operated in good faith, that I didn't have some agenda to trash people or distort, mm-hmm. that I you know, agree or disagree with individual decisions, but I have respect for the institution. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was actually easier to um, get access for this book than it was for the nine because people knew where I was coming from. Do you think that's going to be extended to your next projects given some of the stands that you take in the book? Or the- you know, I don't know. My, my experience with the justices is they are generally uh, good-humored uh, about uh, criticism. Okay. They're, they're used to it. And, um, you know, the, the oath is mostly a book of reporting. You know, sure, there are cases in which I say they are, you know, I agree or disagree, but it's mostly um, factual and analytical rather than a work of advocacy. Okay. Now, you started writing for The New Yorker in 1993 and then won an Emmy Award for the coverage of the Elian Gonzalez case in 2000. Tell me about how winning an Emmy affected you as a writer. What, what did that do as you put that on your shelf and thought, uh, I've made it, I haven't made it, this is something that I wanted, I, I didn't seek? Those kinds of what, what, it couldn't have affected me less. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's nice that I won. I'm very flattered that I won. But, um, you know, it's just one has... I mean, one of the things that's actually good about being on TV is that I find it helps me to get access as a uh, journalist. Mm-hmm. That w- when people see you on TV, they go, oh, I know you, you seem fair, you seem smart, whatever. And um, so in that respect, uh, the, it's, it's complimentary. Sure. But uh, the Emmy itself... Not a thing. Not a thing. Okay. You've written profiles of Supreme Court justices, Breyer, Kennedy, Thomas, and Roberts. What did researching and writing profiles like that teach you about being a writer? Well, you know, the, the 
best piece of writing advice I, I have always gotten, and, and it's, it's a pretty familiar piece of advice, it's show, don't tell, which is, you know, adjectives are boring, stories are interesting, anecdotes, you know, the, the, the um, it, it's one, you know, the, the classic example of the show, don't tell to me is the word funny. If I describe a person as funny, that's not funny and it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. But if I show them being funny, that's funny and, and, and if I hope, or interesting. Okay. And I, it's the same with the justices, but it's the same with anyone you write about, is that you need to anchor what you say about the justices um, in facts about their lives, not adjectives and abstractions. Okay. And maybe this is a related question. Of what writing piece are you most proud? What do you hold up as this is the best thing I've done as a writer? Is it one of the profiles? Is it a well, book? I, you know, I, I perhaps this is I like all my work, <laughs> but um, and, and, I, and I'm certainly uh, proud of the oath since I'm thinking about it at the moment. In, in terms of it, just sort of piece of writing, piece of um, reportage, just. As, as an independent entity, I did a piece for The New Yorker several years ago about a prosecutor in Tucson, Arizona, who was disbarred after faking evidence in death penalty cases. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed everyone in that case. I interviewed the prosecutor who was disbarred, his colleagues, the defense attorneys in the case, the guy on death row who who was uh, you know convicted as a result of his mm-hmm. misconduct and that story about w- was i i thought a very good example of how you can tell a story that's anchored in the facts of an individual case but also illustrate bigger themes about the legal system in the country i was very proud of that case okay. that 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 uh, story so do you call yourself a writer or a journalist you've got your law degree from harvard what What's your core identity? Itinerant content provider. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think of myself as a journalist. Journalist, and, and, and you know, if there's any, and I, I don't consider myself an expert in the evolution of the news media, and the, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, as we know, the the forums with which we communicate with people are changing constantly, right. and I, I, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on the web, I. You know, a lot of people read uh, the New Yorker on tablets. I I don't really care that much how people take in my journalism. Okay. You know, I, I, it doesn't matter to me that much whether they buy the oath as a physical book or for their uh, Kindle just or so Nook. Just as long as they buy it. Just as long as, right. as they right. buy it, of yeah. course. But um, I, 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 I think it's important not to get too fixated on the delivery mechanism, but what you should focus on is the quality of the journalism behind it. Okay. Now, do you have a, is your bachelor's in journalism, or is this something that you've created because you're, you've well, taken a non-traditional my path? my genes are in journalism. Right. Your uh, mother my, was... my mother is Marlene Sanders, one of the pioneering mm-hmm. uh, television correspondents, um, and perhaps more, most importantly, a product of the Ohio State University. Right, of course. And uh, my dad was involved in public television for many years before he died. And uh, so, so I, I grew up in a journalistic household. 
I did not think I would be a journalist. Um, I, I majored in American history and literature in college. Mm -hmm. I went to law school. I was a law clerk. I worked as a prosecutor. I thought I would um, be in the making news business rather than the reporting news business. But in law, you, you were thinking you were going to be in the making news because yeah, I mean, I thought about aspect? being in government or politics okay. or something like that. And uh, at some point. Sooner rather than later, my genetic destiny kicked in, and I preferred to be a reporter. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Jeffrey Tubin. More information about Writer's Talk can be found at www.writerstalk.org. And now, back to Jeffrey Tubin discussing his background as a journalist. As you were starting out, I think you started freelancing in college or uh, law school. Law school, rather. Yeah. Uh, is this something that you shared with your family? At what point did you come out to them and say, "You know what? I know that I've got this other background, but I think I'm going to actually go into journalism." Well, it was it was kind of a gradual thing. Uh, you know, my mother's a television correspondent. Mm -hmm. To this day, she always says to me. Don't quit your print job. Don't quit your day job. Because <laughs> Why she, did she, she say that? Well, because I think she, she, as someone who is very much involved in this business, in this, which in this respect hasn't changed, is television is very mercurial. You know, you're up, you're down. Uh, the stakes are very high. Ratings matter, right. and, and you know it can all vanish pretty quickly. Whereas print, at least at the New Yorker, has been has been more stable. Okay. Um, so, so. Does that impact you then as a writer? You think, okay, this piece is for the New Yorker. This piece may be something that, that goes out into a, a different area. How are the processes different for you as you start to write some? Well, that, that's interesting. I, I, I've now been doing them all. You know, I've been doing TV. I've been doing the New Yorker. I've been writing books for quite some time. Right. And, and you're right that I approach them differently. But I, I'm sure I have a clear way to articulate how they're different. I mean, look, writing a book is such a massive undertaking, mm -hmm. and, and I always take a leave from The New Yorker because I can't write New Yorker stories and write a book at the same time. Why is that? How do they affect it's, each other? Well, it's just too much work. I just don't have the time or the energy to do both at the same okay. time. Um, television's different. You know, I, you have less time. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is less information you can you can impart. You know the, the the important thing you know is to is to maintain the same journalistic standards, whether it's television or um, uh, whether it's television or or print. Okay. Uh, but anyway, that's that's sort right. of how I think. Let's about go it. to that then. Uh, when you talk about the same journalistic standards, what would you say to journalism students at the Ohio State and elsewhere? Is this a field they should really enter? Well, you know, I think they should enter it if they really want to enter it. You know, I, I and let me explain that a little bit. I, I think about it often with law school. That I, in my experience, a lot of people go to law school because they can't think of anything better to do, and they sort of think, well, there'll be a job out there for me. Some this wasn't somewhere. your background. You were determined no, I, I was, and 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 um, I don't think journalism is is quite the same. Look, I mean, I, we all know that journalism is in the process of big upheavals. I mean, newspapers, which were the primary journalistic instrument of our day, uh, are in terrible trouble, and I don't anticipate that turning around anytime soon. However, you know, people's thirst for information and people's ability to get information is greater than it's ever been. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the problem is they have a great thirst for information and no interest in paying for it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so the Internet has persuaded people, has convinced people that information is all free. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a problem that the, the, the media business has not yet figured out a complete answer to. Right. But um, I, I am encouraged by the fact that people... Um, have this hunger for information, which means someone will have to provide it. Now, whether it will be in you know this sort of carbon byproduct or you know a purely electronic form, I don't know. But I am optimistic that you know journalism will be a, a, a something that people want, will be able to make a living in. Okay, um, let's turn to that then the electronic side because as you said, you're a, a big. Twitter fan, you on Facebook. You commented today on Twitter that uh, little known fact: the the Supreme Court was named after the Ohio State University. We appreciate you pointing this fact. Uh, the, the, out that's right. For those who are unaware, but uh, tell me about your take on it on Twitter, though. How does that affect you as a person, as a journalist? Be, to be throwing out these little bits of information seems to me so wholly different than doing a book well, like but, that. But, but see, the thing I. I was sort of, I was I was a Twitter skeptic and I I am a late adopter. I, I had a cell phone after virtually everyone I knew, including my own kids. You mean a non-smartphone cell phone? Not well, well, yeah. I mean, going back, yeah, before smartphones. Okay. Um, I was late to Facebook. I was late to Twitter. But I'm not someone who doesn't come along eventually. I mean, I'm not you know a, a David Souter who doesn't use a computer. I mean, I am. Um, I, I just come along late. And I actually think Twitter is better than Facebook uh, because th- the, the act of scrolling through Twitter posts is a way of getting a lot of information very quickly. And at least on the Twitter, um, the, the Twitter, the tweeters whom I follow, they tend to lead to more information if you want it. I mean, mm-hmm. if you tweet a link to something, you know, that can be quite extensive. So I actually <laughs> like Twitter a lot. I think Twitter is a, a, a useful addition to a media diet. I don't think you should get all your information from Twitter, right. but it's not a waste of time, I found, <laughs> somewhat to my surprise. <laughs> okay. Um, going Moving into uh, something that's... N- you know, closer to home about the Ohio State University and looking at the Big Ten. In August of this year, you published an interview with former Penn State President Graham Spanier in The New Yorker. Tell me about your decision to publish it as a Q&A interview instead of a more traditionally researched and narratively structured journalism piece. This was, this was something new for The New Yorker. We'd never mm-hmm. really done this before. I mean, obviously, NewYorker.com is a very uh, vigorous website, and there's a lot, there's, there are a lot, a lot of people write columns on it. I write a column every other week on it. But this was sort of a big journalistic takeout. You know, this was like 8,000 words. Um, and, and what we decided, David Remnick, the editor, Amy Davidson, who's the, the web editor, we thought that we sort of had two choices. With with a, once I had access to Graham Spanier as right. a, a you know who was willing to talk to me, he hadn't talked to anyone to that point. We could either do a sort of classic New Yorker big takeout on you know is the free report accurate? Is you know did Graham Spanier get a raw deal? And that would have been sort of the traditional way right. of of handling this as a New Yorker writer, but. 
it, it seemed to us that the immediacy of the story was such that, uh, and just given the, the competitive environment about the story, it was better to, to sort of let people make up their own minds and let Spanier talk at some length with appropriate editorial uh, inter, in, in, inter comments right. that, that, that you know it wasn't simply a transcript of our conversation you know I set it up with references to the free report with references to emails that had come out but basically letting him make his case for himself in the web it seemed you could go on for quite a bit of time and if people mm-hmm. wanted to read it they could uh, but um, it, it, it did not require the level and time of journalism that a full New Yorker piece would. Okay. Because I wondered, looking at it, I thought, you know, it was, the, the news was happening so quickly that it seemed like once you got the access to it, that might have been the idea behind it. Let's put it up. I, I, I wish I could tell you it was all thought out in advance. <laughs> um, this, was, this was an improvisation, like a lot of journalism is an okay. improvisation. But I think we were all happy with, with, with how it worked right. out. And, it, and the, the part about that I thought was really fascinating is um, there's a section at the top that says there's a, uh, directs people to a, uh, a postscript sort of, and which um, somebody had corresponded with you about one of the characters in the that he discusses, um, and that's right down there at the bottom, along with all the other hyperlinks. Well, that see, see that's, that's, you know, that's why I think when people talk about, you know, how bad journalism is and how things are always getting worse, and, you know, I think things have gotten so much better. Uh, you know, the, the whole institution of corrections and additions mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, any of us who have been written about in the press... Uh, know how frustrating it is to have people get things wrong. And now, with the web, you can edit, you can amend, you can include uh, alternative views, and, and that's what we've done. And I think that's great. I, I don't, As a journalist, I don't fear that, that kind of scrutiny. I, I welcome it, and I think it, it just benefits our readers to have um, the additional context of you know more information. All right. Well, now this uh, is happening before the next election. So the final mm-hmm. question I have for you is: uh, Are you currently working on any pieces about the election? Uh, and then I'm going to have a surprise, not surprising, follow up to that prediction. Well, I am. I am um, going to. Um, I am working on a piece involving the legal strategies um, here in Ohio. In many of the swing states, there have been legal changes, voting, voter IDs, hours, uh, what Democrats call vote suppression. Um, So I'm working on some stuff about that. Okay. Do you foresee those legal challenges being something that will really impact, uh, besides the legal challenges towards the voting, uh, the people's ability to vote, are those things that you predict will have a big influence on the election? Or no. do you think that they're just going to be... No, because I don't think the election is going to be very close. Okay. I mean, it would only have an impact if the, the election is very close. It doesn't mean it's not interesting. It doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean like it couldn't have in, in impact in other elections down the road or, or down ballot questions. But in terms of Obama versus Romney, no, I don't think it'll have much impact. Okay. Well, I thank you very much for being with us here today. Great to be here. For more about my guest, Jeffrey Tubin, visit www.writerstalk.org. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler from the Ohio State University. Keep writing.